Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, your guide to everything love, sex, intimacy, and relationships. Each week, your host, Zach Beach, interviews new experts on love, including couples therapists, relationship coaches, sex educators, and best-selling authors. Learn the best tips and cutting-edge wisdom to better love yourself, others, and the world. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I am your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible rabbi, Judy Greenfeld. Hello, Judy, and welcome to the show. Hi, Zach. It's wonderful to be here. Today, we are going to talk about intermarriage success. And for those that don't know, Rabbi Judy Greenfeld is the founder and spiritual leader of the Nakshon Minion and Religious School in Encino, California. Her passion is teaching and updating adults to the modern inclusive practices that come from the old scriptures that all monotheists share. She is the author of two books, Minding the Temple of the Soul and Entering the Temple of Dreams. Her work has resulted in profiles in both local and national publications, including the Los Angeles Jewish Journal, which reported, Everything the Nakshon Minion comprises is imbued with a spiritual inclusiveness that has drawn a devoted and burgeoning membership. Judy has lectured and taught movement and prayer at retreats and synagogues around the United States. How are you doing today, Judy? I'm doing well, Zach. I woke up this morning and did my practices and... As I said, I remembered that one of them is to adapt to the new normal. Absolutely. You know, now is a really wonderful time to kind of double down on our spiritual practice. Um, Now we can't go out and do the fun things and adventurous things. We can use this opportunity to look within. And our topic for today is intermarriage success. But since we're already talking about spiritual practice, I first want to really thank you for coming on to the show. We've had a number of Buddhist teachers and meditation teachers come on to the show. It wasn't intentionally meant to cater more towards Buddhism, but Buddhism does provide a lovely framework for talking about cultivating things like love and compassion and kindness. And recently, we also had a person representing the Christian community. So I'm really happy to have somebody coming from the Jewish faith. And I really appreciate just the way religions in general tell us to open the heart and tell us to bring more love and compassion to our lives. So I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about how the Jewish faith brings more connection and love into the world. It's interesting because I'm not sure if people know how much Judaism speaks about love. It tends to sometimes be seen as connected to the Old Testament. And It seems more as if it has rules and laws that we have to abide by. But Judaism believes that love is really a foundational value, and it's a core principle in Judaism, so much so that the central prayer, which is called the Shema, this declaration of oneness, is giving our heart and soul to this one God. And this was the spontaneous reaction of the Jewish people at Mount Sinai, not just the Jewish people, all monotheists at Mount Sinai, when they declared this new type of faith that created equality and created a connection to this invisible one being. And what's interesting is that prayer, the Shema that declares oneness, it follows, the words that follow, via Havta is how we create this connection of love with God. What I find interesting is that an analogy that I give to many people who have who struggle with belief in God is 
we can't see God, but we also can't see love. I mean, we imagine it's little hearts flying, but we can't really see love. So how do we know it's there? And I think that that correlation is so interesting because it's so palpable, that feeling of love. And if we decide to tune in and we tune our faith and we tune our belief system towards this invisible benevolent energy, we can feel it. But there has to be a decision to feel it, just like there has to be a decision to love. And the belief also is that because we are loved so much, we receive wisdom. We are given a pathway with some boundaries and rules in order to have this good life and a life that is filled with things that we should be enjoying that we're not told to refrain from. And then to have boundaries, just like any child growing up, if they don't have boundaries, they don't feel love. So it's also to see that those boundaries and those rules, although everybody internalizes them differently, are meant to help us feel that real sense of being cared about and love. It's true. I often think about this phrase along the lines of that the things that change us the most are the formless or the things we can't touch or see. Things like gratitude and love and kindness and compassion, all these wonderful ideas. And then, of course, the love of God has the power to transform us. So you've mentioned the love of God. And before we get into what loving God and what the love from God looks like, let's just tackle this, this huge uh, term that we're using right now. Because I just wanted to ask you how you kind of relate to God in your own faith and also what you teach to people in your synagogue. Now, I know a majority of those in the Jewish faith believe in a personal God that they can have a back and forth relationship to, they can talk to, receive messages from. But there are some other Jewish thinkers who think of God as nature or perhaps an ideal or a force or a process. I'm wondering how you encourage people to relate to God in the Jewish sense. I think it's important to give people the dignity to discover what God is for them, because it's definitely a journey. And I have many people in my congregation who struggle with their belief in God, and I struggle with my belief in God. And I think that every clergy can say that they struggle with it. And even the word Israel, the people of Israel, that word in Hebrew, Israel, is one who struggles with God. And one of the things that I do teach is that God has 72 names. So God can also be referred to as creator, healer, oh, Lord mm -hmm. of mercy. There are many different names that if the word God is a turnoff, which for many people it is, I encourage people to put in a name that they can relate to. And sometimes that helps. I also found out that the word God, when I looked it up, what does God really mean? And it's not it's only one semantic word that in Yiddish, the word for gut, for God is gut, but also gut also means goodness. People will say good yontif, which means have a good holiday or a good yom tov. And I've also had many people say, could you put the word good in place of God? Then they'll say, well, God's evil too. And I said, yes, but I associate God with vitality. If something is growing and it's a life force, that's the God that I reach out to. The life force to help me grow into the person that I'm meant to be. The one who moves through me to help someone else. I also believe that there's a God sense within, that that's our highest self. 
And so I think there's this connection and it's complex. It's not a simple word or a simple idea. And I think all of the above that you were mentioning are ways of not saying what is God, but how is God in my life? Mm. And I do see it as a driving force towards goodness, towards growth, towards movement forward. Mm. That's really beautiful. I first want to thank you for being vulnerable that people struggle with this big concept and people struggle. Even the leaders of certain faith movements struggle with their relationship with God. And I really just love the 72 names that you bring up and all the positive emotions and and qualities we can attribute to this force, this creator, this healer, mercy, vitality. And I love what you just said that this big name is a life force to help me grow into the person I was meant to be. Mm-hmm. What does the divine love of God or from God look like? As I was saying, I think the experience of godliness, holiness, a divine being is not a person that is guiding every move that you make. That the relationship with God is really connecting an individual to their highest self, to their best self. I even start my day, I will wake up and say a prayer that says, thank you for returning me to my physical body, because I'm also a soul. The Jewish faith in the morning says that we say a prayer over our mind and our body and our soul, which is all one package. And that soul is the connector. It's the connecting Mm. piece. So I think that one of the most beautiful things about believing in God is a pathway to loving yourself. Because God loves you so much that it's a benevolent life force. And to get in touch with that and to realize that you're a child of God, that you are human, that you are forgiven, that you get second chances, that you will make mistakes, you will make terrible mistakes. But unconditionally, every year on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, you get to grapple with that. And you get to really take a look at your behavior and you can also heal from it by vowing not to repeat it again. And so I think that process of self-love must be included in this idea about believing in God. I do believe it starts with the self. And to get there, sometimes I know that I feel comfortable with having a personal God that I can write to or speak to. And it's my higher voice. What would my highest self do in this situation? That's a question that I ask myself, and that's really how I connect personally to God. And then, of course, in prayer and in the fixed prayers of our prayer book, it helps me to realize that I'm connected to an entire universe or a web of individuals who pray at the same time as I do and who grapple with the same ideas and the ancient language and all of the things that come into play when we pray as a community or as a global community. I always love thinking of the spiritual path as a path to loving ourselves. And when we bring this entity of God, we also bring in this idea that God loves us as well. And we can step into that. And you brought up this body and this soul and mind as all one package. And I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that because, you know, I was reading this lovely relationship to our bodies that we can cultivate in your book. And I know many religious traditions often separate the spiritual and the material, even like self-flagellation, for example, like we're supposed to reject like the needs and desires of the flesh if we are to attain a certain level of spirituality. 
So you write in your book, Minding the Temple of the Soul, about the importance of bringing loving attention back to the physical body. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about this mind-body-soul complex and how important it is to stay rooted in these physical bodies as part of our spiritual practice. Yeah, I think that what made me aware of this in a very powerful way is that we start the morning and the very first prayer, Mode Ani, says, thank you, God, for returning my soul to this physical body. And all of a sudden, my mind perked up. I also, I love Buddhism. I love other religions and philosophies that would talk about this, yoga. And I wondered if it was in Judaism. And clearly, in that very morning prayer, that very first prayer, it supports that idea. And as you go through the morning blessings, which are in Minding the Temple of the Soul, I began to see that as you interpret them, they also follow that category. The very first prayer is Matovu, we're setting up our physical space. And then it has this beautiful prayer about the soul. And this prayer says, God, you've created me purely. Like I start out every day pure. And it's this sense that we are born in this purity, in this innocence. And it says, the soul that you give me, you formed it, you've, you blew it into me at birth. And it stays in this physical body through this lifetime. And then when it's finished and has learned its lessons, it leaves. But throughout my lifetime, that breath of life never leaves. And there's a lot of Kabbalah and mysticism that goes into detail about how the body and the soul struggle because the soul is nourished by prayer and by exactly what we're talking about. And the physical body sometimes just wants to run rampant. (laughs) You know, it's instinctual. It's an animal body. So we are constantly having to tame that physical body, our needs, our desires that can can continually want, can be hungrier than we would like them to be. And our goal is to find a place where we can balance, where the soul fits inside the body and is in a balanced way. That's what we're always, I think, working towards developing. What a wonderful affirmation that we start every day pure. And I love the addition of gratitude to the prayer as well, that every day we wake up is a beautiful day. It's a beautiful opportunity to come deeper into our path and deeper into our hearts. And sometimes we're spiritual beings on a human path. Sometimes we're human beings on a spiritual path and we integrate both these aspects of our experience. And we see another way to find oneness when two people become one in a beautiful marriage. So let's begin talking about marriage And before I get into intermarriage, let's just focus on marriage in general. Because marriage has this interesting dichotomy as both a legal and a religious institution. As people get married, they sign contracts with the state uh, that gives them certain rights. But many come to and experience marriage in a deeply religious sense. I wanted to ask you about perhaps the advantage of turning a relationship commitment between two people into kind of a promise before God. So I clearly see God as a being that's higher than myself. And I think that when we do that, it is a perspective that's higher than myself. And what I am, I would say enslaved to a little bit, but you know, what habits might, we're not always our best self. We can't possibly be. And it's very sobering to think that if you took a couple of steps away from and watched an interaction with somebody, maybe you would change the way that you would interact with them. Or if you have a little time after you've had a reaction towards somebody, your behavior towards them will be different. So when we think about that, 
and especially marriage. For Judaism, it's one of the most precious institutions of all. And there's a point in scripture where it says that man was not created to be alone. And that's why Eve was created. And even the notion of God, people will say to me, well, do you think God is a woman? Do you think God is a man? And I usually use the analogy of a yin-yang symbol. It's not a typical man-woman, but it is a combination, I believe, of all of those character traits and those polarities that exist in one form. Because if we're created in the image of God, there must be a feminine side. So this integration, I think, when we become human beings, is found in two people. Because I think a marriage, an ideal marriage, is that the two become better together than they are apart. And there's a beautiful teaching also that when souls are born into this lifetime, they split one female and one male. And that soul splits and it finds a, a male or, and a female and spends its lifetime looking for its other half. And when we find our soulmate, it joins again. And those souls join together and clearly those people are meant to be together, which is that sense of beshared. And this is what goes along with what I said before. It's a feeling of coming home. And so this preciousness of marriage it's very deep, and yet it's bound by a written contract. I divorced myself after almost 30 years. I went through a divorce five years ago, and I realized why you write a contract. And I realized that in my life, many contracts are very important to have in relationships. I resisted it at first, but I began to see that it's important for us to clarify what it is that we expect from one another. And if it's unrealistic, because at different times in our life, we expect different things and they're not always talked about or we're embarrassed of them or we don't even realize that we feel that way. So idea of having God present is an opportunity I see to really check in and be our best selves and to not get into some of our childish needs become a whole unit. And then there's a sense of, and now what do we do once we're together as a unit, as a united front? I think that, you know, again, there are so many paradoxes and contradictions that we have in our religion. And I think ultimately we have to decide for ourselves what feels comfortable. So on one hand, it is a contract. Legally, the Man is supposed to take care of the woman. It's kind of an old-fashioned formula, but that all a woman's needs are taken care of. And in ancient times, more ancient times, there was a dowry. There was a prolonged engagement. There was an agreement between the families. And so there's a practical piece. And the reason for marriage is to procreate and to replace yourself on this planet. And yet it's a very spiritual experience because there of this story that I had explained before, one of the things in our life is that we're looking for a soulmate. And there's a belief that at birth, when the soul comes down into our earthly plane, the soul splits and one goes, finds a male baby and one finds a female baby. And that it is in our lifetime that we search for this Bashar, for this one that in a sense is our missing piece and creates a sense of wholeness inside of us. Mm. And that's a very strong belief. And that's what we call a Bashert. 
Now, in this day and age, we don't have a lot of arranged marriages. And I'm speaking for a more, the more liberal, not the Orthodox community, because they still do that. But as we know, it's very hard to find the right match. And that one of the things I do believe in is sometimes that soulmate isn't Jewish. And that creates a lot of external issues because of people's belief systems. But that's one of the reasons that I do marry people from different faiths, intermarriage, interracial, because it's not such an easy thing to find your other half. And so my sense is that it's important to preserve that and to rejoice in that. Let's go right into that idea of marrying somebody of a different faith. I remember quite a few episodes ago, we had a dating coach and she was expressing how important it is for couples entering into relationships to have very similar values around how they want to live their life and how they see the future panning out for both of them. And I can see how that can come into conflict if people are coming from two very different religious backgrounds. So you mentioned that we have this soulmate somewhere on this planet, and sometimes the soulmate is of a different faith than we are. So how do we navigate these differences? Well, I think that what that therapist was saying about finding people with the same values, we have to remember that all monotheists do have the same value system because we are all rooted in the beliefs of the Bible, of the Torah. And that desire to be good or to embrace values, to live with principles, to live with morals is very important, I think universally. But yes, it takes a lot of discussion and it definitely takes rediscussion because I think values can change. But that's what I encourage people to talk about, couples to talk about, where they see themselves in five years, where they see themselves, what stumbling blocks may lie ahead when they have children in old age. Even if they are just imagining, they're still setting a standard for themselves. And it's hard to see, of course, when you're young and you get married. But I think that that's changed. And I think people are getting married older. And I think that it's very important to have some similar beliefs or at least a forum where they can be discussed and respected, bottom line. Because when a couple isn't completely settled on a ground floor or in a foundational place, that is when there is conflict and it's hard for a child to navigate the conflicting value system. I appreciate what you're saying about creating a forum where beliefs can be discussed and respected because as long as two people in a relationship respect each other and even value each other's point of view, that can provide a really successful foundation. Well, if we get emotionally heated whenever our different belief systems come up, there isn't that connection and there isn't an open dialogue. So you just mentioned different values can be challenging for a child growing up. And I'm wondering about like all the differences of what an interfaith marriage might look like. You mentioned discussing values and making sure you're on the same page five years, 10 years from now. And there's also like different holidays and different traditions and different times to give gifts and different times to celebrate and different times to meet with family members. And I'm wondering, how do we navigate those differences and how do we navigate those values to come to a compromise or a consensus or agreements that work for both parties? Yeah, I think it's different for everyone. And it really comes down to asking those hard questions before you get married and not just being moved by, oh, everyone's getting married, I want to get married. I think that those hard questions really need to be taken into account 
Like, what are we going to do with the holidays? You know, which ones are we celebrating? How do we want to raise our children? You know, my congregation is comprised of families like that. What's interesting that I find is that one of the reasons that we were growing up, I was discouraged from intermarrying was because what we heard was from psychologists or I don't know who from, or from rabbis or clergy, the child won't know who they are. What I'm finding is the children know who they are and they know, you know, when they're Jewish and when they're not. And I've had families where one child just says, I need to have a bat mitzvah or a bar mitzvah. This is something that's really important to me. And then there's a child that doesn't resonate to that. I was shocked because I didn't know that the reality was those children know. And somehow at those particular times in their life, those rites of passage really affect them. And they're called. And those are the ones I have. It's also an opportunity for parents to get more of an adult education about their religion. Because I find that, especially in the Jewish religion, after a barbat mitzvah, which is an intense time where you're really learning about your Jewish identity, many people stop going to temple. And most Mm. of them have 13-year-old educations and still think that God is a man in the sky that they don't believe in. Because when they'll come to me, they'll say, well, I don't believe in God. And I'll say, which God is it that you don't believe in? I probably don't believe in that Mm. one either. That's going to punish you or whatever. So that's the struggle that I'm in is that I have an opportunity. It's not really a struggle. I have an opportunity to update them along with their child who the children who come to me, we have a joke, say, God is not a sky wizard. (laughs) And I'm really happy to hear that. So we have an opportunity to discuss that and to also make space for the fact that it could change. So I'm not sure if I answered your question, but... You did answer the question in a few different ways. You know, the first thing you said is to ask the hard questions before getting married. And, you know, this applies across the board, right? You know, a lot of people, they fall in love and they think the feeling of love is is plenty enough in order to get married, but they don't have real conversations around money around their future, around when to have children, how many children to have. So of course, what to do around the holidays, what to do around traditions, what to do about passing values on to the children, of course, also comes up and should be brought into that conversation. You know, another thing that is difficult is that many of the Christian holidays or the, are like, they're also American holidays. And we also have to decide what we want to do with the holidays like Thanksgiving or Christmas or whatever, because we celebrate all of them. And what I say to the parents is you need to know where the holidays come from, that Valentine's Day is about a massacre and that Hanukkah is also about a, a battle. Most people look at holidays as just a fun time. It's all like Thanksgiving. It's about having family together, maybe exchanging presents. And that is one facet, but I think that it's through the holidays that one can really understand their Jewish identity. Knowledge is really power. And a lot of people do indeed sort of reject aspects of religion because of what they have simply heard or the image that they have about it, which is not necessarily complete or not necessarily the only idea. So I love what you just said about God not being a sky wizard, which many people you know, do think of some person in a beard sitting in a club. And it seems very patriarchal and doesn't really resonate with them. So then they kind of throw out the baby with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. You mentioned some tips around 
having these conversations around your belief systems and your faith. And I'm wondering if you have some just general tips before heading into marriage or once you are in marriage, um, because you do counsel couples on a variety of topics, like whether or not to take the plunge into marriage. So I'm wondering if you have any tips for success. I think first and foremost is to bring up some of those topics, which I do. I ask them to, you know, write a little contract of how they see those different stages in life. I have to tell you that when they, most of the couples that have come to me have made up their minds. And when some of the conflicts do come up, in fact, one couple realized that they weren't going to get married because there really was this, the reality of not budging. And the one thing I do want to say is we can't have it all. Unfortunately, there's this fantasy, well, I can go to church sometimes, I can go to, you know, to synagogue sometimes. Yes and no. I think that for the parents, the most important thing for that child is that they know that there's a real respect for what each one believes. I know families that spend time in church and also in temple. And what the children need to know is what are the differences, not good or bad, not from a judgmental standpoint. What are the different ways of believing? In some ways, it's it can be similar to understanding different systems. I'm a scientist. I'm a, I don't want to get political, but it's just having different belief systems and really learning how to listen to one another without having to be the only or the right way. You know, it's funny. I have a friend and she's married and she's primarily comes from an English speaking background and then her husband comes from a Spanish speaking background. So they're kind of raising the child in this bilingual household. And at first when the child started learning to speak, he would just combine English and Spanish words like all the time because to him it was one language. <laughs> and what I'm hearing from you is very similar is that you can differentiate and respect these two belief systems as fully whole and fully interesting. And something that you do need to teach a child is that they are different and how they are different. I, the important thing is not to let those belief systems compete. You know, on your dad's side, if it's Jewish and you're on your mom's side, if it isn't, I don't know how to achieve that, to make sure that, that that it's authentic, except to just for those parents to continually lead their motivation and their what their connection is, the beauty that they see. So there's a healthy curiosity about what each one believes. I'm saying this also for people who are more liberal, because I think if you're extreme in either one of those places, that it's very difficult to operate and be connected to your laws and practices in a marriage that is is intermarried. I was wondering if you could rather quickly address a certain fear that people have with intermarriage, which is along the lines that it's going to dilute or potentially destroy the faith, meaning that people believe that tradition needs to be like really tightly controlled. And I'm sure there's even a number of people in the Jewish faith who really discourage intermarriages of people of different faiths because they don't want to quote unquote, like lose a member as they differentiate themselves from the church or synagogue. So I'm wondering if you could just address somebody who is afraid that if they do marry outside of their faith, that's going to dilute or lessen the faith's impact on the world. My experience has been that the only thing that dilutes a person's faith is if they're rejected by their faith. That if they go to their rabbi who says absolutely not, that their partner will feel like they were rejected. 
and they'll never come back. And on the other side, if the partner goes to a Catholic priest and says, absolutely not. And that's what our past has been. And I'm trying to encourage change because it's important to leave the door open and that someone isn't bad for doing that. You know, a lot of our religions, at least when I was growing up in the 60s, was based on guilt and you, this is good, this is bad, and you you broke the law, you know, you, you sinned or whatever it is. It was based on a lot of fear. And that's not a loving God. That's not an unconditional God. That's the one I'm connected to. And so I, again, as you were talking about that, is I think that it doesn't dilute. In fact, I think it strengthens. And if you have a religion that proudly welcomes the stranger, which is what is one of the main foundational ideas about Judaism to bring the stranger into your house. And don't forget that you were a stranger in a strange land. That was a huge fear that we would assimilate, that the Jewish people, and I think it is of all groups. I'm sure Catholicism felt that way and in Christianity and Islam, that if you come into a culture that is called a melting pot, will really become, well, everything will melt. But that's not the truth. I think that I have so many children in my congregation who go to Catholic school and become more Jewish than they've ever been. So it's been very interesting to watch it play out. And the only way we lose people is to reject them. So that's why I don't. So true. So true that the only thing that dilutes a person's faith is if they were rejected by their faith. And this especially applies to the LGBTQ community. And I'm including that community. And if I didn't specifically say that, I'm including that community as well. Well, it's wonderful to hear your perspective. It's just so open and it's just so welcoming and it's just so accepting of people of all backgrounds and and faiths to come together with this unifying force of love. So it's really beautiful to hear. And I want to finish by asking you a question I love to ask all of my guests, which is quite simply, what do you wish everyone knew about love? What I wish that everyone knew about love is that it changes and that what first love is, or what if you have your heart broken, it actually is that you have not, you know, you'll never have love again, but it breaks open. And anyone in the throes of having a broken heart, I guess, is who I'm reaching out to, to trust, even though it's extremely painful and it makes you question everything it actually breaks you open to a whole new aspect of love and different ways that you love. And I wish I had known that when I was going through, well, I did know it, but I think that just hearing it, this is a reassurance or that love isn't ruined if your heart is broken, that it has shelf life and that it continues on and it just keeps growing as long as you allow it in. What a beautiful statement that when our heart breaks, it breaks open and it breaks us open to a whole new aspect of love and it just keeps growing as long as we continue to allow it in. Thank you so much, Rabbi Judy Greenfeld, for coming on to the show and sharing us your spiritual wisdom and encouraging us to deepen our relationship to God and to see the spiritual path of loving ourselves. For our listeners who want to learn more about you and find you, uh, how can they do that? On www.nachshonminion.org, N-A-C-H-S-H, 
O-N-M-I-N-Y-A-N.org, nachshonminion.org. I'd love to hear from you if what I'm saying resonates with you. And I think that marriage is very important at this time, especially at this time, because it reminds us that even in times of crisis, we can find our Besheret, our other half. And I think that that really gives us hope, which is what we need right now. Indeed. Even in these crazy times, there's still love to be found and love to create and cultivate. Right. Thanks so much, Rabbi, for coming on to the show and sharing us your wisdom. And thank you, listeners, for listening to the show. We hope you remember that your spiritual path is a pathway to loving yourself. And as with all relationships, it's important to have really honest and open conversations before jumping into something as incredible and special as marriage. And for parents of in interfaith marriages, it's incredibly important to have real respect for what the other one believes. If you want to learn more about me, you can find me at zachbeach.com and learn more about the show at theheartcenter.com. Thanks again, Judy. Thank you, Zach. Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to zachbeach.com or theheartcenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 